Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. That is Galatians 5, 23. I'm your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining us for this eighth bonus episode in our series, What Every Adoptive and Foster Parent Needs to Know About Trauma, FASD, and ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, with our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown. This series covers vital topics for all of us adoptive, foster, and kinship caregivers. I recommend you take notes during these episodes, I am. And if you don't have a notebook or pen handy, feel free to pause the podcast, go grab some uh, pencil, paper, whatever you need. um, And then you can return to listening or you can just listen straight through. And then if you really feel like there's some information you want to go back and kind of sort through, you can listen through a second time and take notes then. Either way, I know you're going to glean such wonderful, helpful information regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop in your inbox on Mondays. This series with Dr. Brown, these are bonus episodes that are dropping on Fridays. Uh, If you're not a subscriber to this podcast yet, I would sincerely appreciate it if you would take a moment and subscribe and even leave a review, especially if you're listening on an Apple device. Uh, It's super simple to do, and it really makes a huge impact. It gets this podcast out there to more listeners because when you subscribe, it signals to the algorithm that the show is relevant and important. We believe it is, and we would like all adoptive foster and kinship caregivers to be able to find the show because we believe it is a vital resource for the parenting journey. Um, So I hope you take a moment to do that. And of course, Um, If you have a question or a comment, you want to reach out um, at all, you can let us know. You can contact me always through our website, justicefororphansny.org. You can also email me personally at sandraflackjfo at gmail.com. Also, we are super excited. Um, I want to invite you to join our FASD support community. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and I are collaborating together to bring you Hope for the FASD Journey. It's a virtual support community for us caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. And even if you just suspect that your uh, loved one um, maybe was exposed to uh, any, any type of drug, a lot of times drugs and drinking go hand in hand. Um, so you may not even realize that that is something that you are dealing with. So check check us out if you are interested in uh, learning more and just seeing if you can 
um, you know, really get that support and community that you need, because this can be a very, very isolating journey. Uh, this is a faith-based community with, uh, that will include uh, bi-monthly support group meetings via Zoom, one VIP conversation each month as well, and our private Facebook group, which will include a video devotional every Saturday by either myself or Natalie. For details or to join, and we're offering the community now at um, a special uh, special price of $15 a month, um, you can learn more at justicefororphansny.org and then click training and then FASD in the drop down, and you'll see actually all of our FASD trainings and trauma trainings and resources, um, as well as the community. So I hope you'll check that out. Now to our guest, Jared Brown, PhD, is an assistant professor for Concordia University, St. Paul, Minnesota. Jared has also been employed with Pathways Counseling Center at St. Paul for the past 17 years. Pathways provides programs and services benefiting individuals impacted by mental illness and addictions. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four, not one, but four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. Jared is also certified as a youth fire setting prevention intervention specialist, an anger resolution therapist, a thinking for a change facilitator, an FASD trainer, an autism specialist, and a mental health integrative medicine provider. It's a mouthful, but he certainly knows what he's talking about. Please welcome Dr. Jared Brown. Hey, Jared, welcome back to the show. Sandra, thank you for having me. Honored to be here and excited to talk with you and your audience about self-regulation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you back. I have to say that these bonus uh, trauma episodes are very popular with our listeners. Last week, um, we unpacked executive function, the boss of the brain. I love that description. Um, and just how prenatal exposure and trauma cause executive dysfunction and understanding the brain and how trauma and FASD impact the brain are absolutely vital topics for every foster and adoptive parent. Um, and I know, like you said, today we're going to be talking about trauma and self-regulation, such an important topic. So Jarrett, would you define self-regulation for me? So self-regulation, this is a big, big, big topic. There are many different dimensions to this. People are really surprised to learn that. So you have what basically what what's your ability to regulate your emotions that's a component of this so emotional regulation i'll talk about that a few times today but what happens if someone lacks motivation that's a self-regulation deficit so our ability to stay motivated is a self-regulation skill i get discouraged i get i get frustrated but what do i do with that do i throw in the towel and say i'm done I'm not going to school today. I'm not going to work. I don't keep to my commitments. These are all really related to self-regulation. Obviously, there's other components wrapped up in there. 
there's regulation of cognition. So if you break that apart a little bit more, how is your ability or your child's ability to stay focused when maybe there's some background noise at hand or the TV's on and you're trying to have a conversation and that person is always looking at the TV or looking at their phone. That's regulation of attention. If you notice someone drifting off all the time and can't stay focused on on you or maybe their school teacher or whatever, that's a, a self-regulation issue. Regulation of our physical behavior. Can one sit still in their chair? Do they constantly have to move around and get up and they just can't manage their own personal body space. They walk really close to someone. They're always touching someone. And that's a self-regulation deficit. Obviously, there's other things wrapped up into this too. And then what about social behavior? Do we know how to regulate all of these things in a social environment? If you can't, what happens? The person might be more likely to be teased and bullied. They might be more likely not to be included in like a group activity or in sports. Maybe they're the last one to be picked. That's an extreme example, but that regulation plays out in the social arena too, which can contribute to a host of issues. And then as that goes on for a long period of time, if they're excluded, they start feeling sad, guilty. Sometimes they may start associating with folks that might not have their best intentions in mind as they get older and become teenagers. That could trickle down into maybe coming into contact with the criminal justice system. Maybe they're more likely to use drugs and alcohol when they get older. We'll talk about all that. Everything I'm saying is supported in the research literature. So going really a little bit deeper into this, Breaking down self-regulation, when it's working properly, we can control our impulses better. We can delay gratification. We can make better decisions, typically. We're able to recognize and correct when we make mistakes. So people with really good self-regulation can reflect back on when you made a mistake and learn from that and hopefully apply that new, newly learned information to not make that same mistake over and over again. Can they initiate behavior too? Can they be a good self-starter and initiate without being told and reminded constantly? If they always have to be reminded to do something over and over and over again, that's a, that's a red flag indicator for self-regulation. How we express our emotions as well. Maybe again, I'm really frustrated. I... I wake up in the morning, something didn't go my way, I go to work. Can I regulate my emotions and express them in a healthy way to my coworkers? Or am I going to be mopey all day, irritable, start getting mad at people and taking it out on them? These are all components of self-regulation. If you were to break this down even further, emotional regulate is, again, how we manage strong feelings or when we become really emotionally dysregulated inside can we engage in healthy positive self-talk can we get that negative energy out maybe through journaling or deep breathing or going for a walk or playing with your animal or gardening or whatever it is and can we name our emotions 
without like yelling, screaming and swearing. So if I'm really mad right now, can I go to my mom or dad or could I go to my friends or coworker and just name it? I'm feeling frustrated right now. I feel upset. Or do you just fly off the handle? You have the behavioral components to self-regulation. So rule following problems would fall under that umbrella. That inability to delay gratification would also be a, a behavioral self-regulation component. I encourage your audience to listen or go on YouTube and watch some videos on the marshmallow test. That's a classic test that shows how important it is to teach kids how to delay gratification. Staying persistent and hanging in there, even though it may not be going your way is a behavioral self-regulation. Conflict resolution, goal-oriented behaviors, these are all things to be aware of when we think of behavioral self-regulation. And if we look at this through a cognitive self-regulation lens, that is also going to include some of the things I mentioned. But under that cognitive umbrella, we, we spoke last week about executive function. That's a component of executive function. And a core component of executive function is goal planning, problem solving, decision making, working memory, inhibition, cognitive flexibility, abstract reasoning, the list goes on and on. So that's a basic breakdown of self-regulation before I move into some of the building blocks that can help support self-regulation or put fractures or cracks in our self-regulation. wanted to see if you had any thoughts, Sandra. Wow, like mind blown again, because it just affects everything, especially if you have an individual prenatally exposed to alcohol or um, and or childhood trauma. It all is so interconnected, of course, because it's all brain, right? Because you've we've got I mean, there's there's other other body systems that come into play, too, of course, but that that boss of the brain, the executive function, and then this um you know, with the, with the, um, self-regulation, I know one of the things that was coming to me was that impulse control and just being able to, to control oneself, regulate oneself and all of these different capacities. Um, just amazing how it's all so interconnected. Um, so it must, it is, it is a part of the executive function, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Definitely. So if we think of inhibition, inhibitions are parking brake, our pause button. If you Google the term inhibition or impulse control or self-control or self-regulation, you'll find articles on all of those topics that use those terms. But between all those terms, there's way more similarities than there are differences. And as we get deeper into this series, and I know we're doing a lot of things related to executive function. I'll try to break all of them apart as just possible. But it gets it gets confusing. But just when when you hear me talk about inhibition, impulse control, self-regulation, I'm going to use them interchangeably. Some researchers might have a little different definition, but they're pretty close to the same thing. Yeah. Oh, that's good clarity. They're kind of interchangeable terms because that's what I was thinking right away was was the impulse control. And that's one of the really primary symptoms or characteristics of FASD is that impulse control. 
So that's definitely a big part of this. So I know you were going to um, continue with what you were going to say, because I know one of my big you know, questions as myself being a parent um, is just like, okay, so how do I get, you know, how do I help my child self-regulate? So, um, you know, I know you had some other things you wanted to go to first, but then you can jump to that question and just kind of help us parents and caregivers um, it, with that. Absolutely. So I'll talk about some things that can definitely erode self-regulation, but if you look at this research literature, and there's literally thousands of studies on these topics, if more, the building blocks of self-regulation involve having good executive function, which then obviously relates to having good working memory, inhibition, so can we put the brakes on and pause and reflect and think through things without just saying whatever comes to our mind, having good social skills to this. Sensory processing relates to this too. So if we have good sensory processing, typically that helps support having better self-regulation. Language plays a lot into this. So having good language skills, receptive, expressive, pragmatic language capabilities, that supports self-regulation. Having good emotional awareness, good clarity, our ability to really stay focused and have good attention. These are really the different building blocks of self-regulation. Now, if you want to throw FASD into the mix, people with FASD have deficits in almost every one of these areas, if not all of them. That is one reason why. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, <laughs> so I definitely, I mean, just any kind of trauma can put fractures in it. So there's a lot of things that can definitely erode our self-regulation. But when we have good self-regulation, what happens? There's plenty of research to show we'll live longer. People that are impulsive throughout their entire life typically don't live as long as people that have good control over their emotions. Why is that the case? A lot of reasons for that. People with really bad self-regulation may be more likely to engage in risk-taking behaviors, behaviors that are not conducive to living a healthy lifestyle. So they might be more likely to use tobacco products, drugs, alcohol, come into contact with the criminal justice system. Again, not everyone with regulation deficits is going to do that, but a percentage of people in prison right now have self-regulation issues. A very high percentage of people who have drug and alcohol problems have self-regulation issues. People that engage in road rage, domestic violence, child abuse, those are all rooted partially. It's not the only thing to consider, but self-regulation is a big component. So when it's, when it's working well, when self-regulation is, is doing what it's supposed to do, in theory, it should help us have better empathy for others and better perspective taking. We're able to adjust more, more effectively. So I know I'm sure you agree with this. If you're working with someone with FASD, they have a hard time adjusting when something is different. Novel situations can be very stressful. Things that are unpredictable, having to change something at the last second, good thing. 
people with good self-regulation are able to kind of be more flexible, adaptable, and go with the flow in those situations. We achieve goals more effectively. We typically follow rules more effectively. We're more respectful to other people and we can express our emotions in a healthier manner. And we have better moral development. So we have better ethical and legal decision-making skills. And so when we have good self-regulation, it really plays a role in some of those. And also good self-regulation plays a huge role in our language, as I mentioned before. And it even can, it really plays a role in reading and writing and our overall physical health. And it really can a component of improving our overall health and well-being. Because if you look at some of the interventions out there, regardless of what field of study it's in, oftentimes self-regulation comes up as an intervention strategy to use with people with trauma, people with sleep issues, people with screen time addiction, people who engage in inappropriate sexual behavior, whatever it is. Self-regulation is often a skill that is always recommended to teach that person to stop, pause, reflect, think through before you act in the moment. So the research, Sandra, leans to the fact that with greater self-regulation, we're happier, we're healthier, we do better in school, we make better financial decisions, our mental health is typically better. There's some studies that show that people are more likely to go to their doctor for routine checkups. Came across the study stating people with better self-regulation are more likely to use sunscreen in the sun to protect their skin. Just lots, it's just all kinds of things. We just, we make better decisions. For self-regulation, more health behaviors, physical and emotional, more likely again to come into contact with the criminal justice system, more likely to use substances, more likely to have employment or relationship problems, to name a few. Before I move into some other components of this in terms of just some things that can really fracture this, any any thoughts, anything you want me to go a little bit deeper into? Um, wow, just there's just it affects everything. Yes. Um, and I just, I see, you know, all of these, all all of, I'm making the list, I'm taking notes with everything you're saying and it's, you know, and I'm seeing, you know, there's all these wonderful things with good self-regulation and then the opposite is true when there's a problem with self-regulation, when an individual has impulse control problems. And I keep thinking about my, my kids who have FAS and how, you know, gosh, all of these problems because they lack impulse control, they have a hard time self-regulating. Um, so uh, go a little bit deeper, but I know I'm kind of like hanging on by a thread here. I need some, I need some tips on how to teach our kids um, self-regulation. Like how can we improve that? Yeah, I'll give you a ton. Um, a couple other things I've, I just thought of some cases I've consulted on in years past where self-regulation was big factor in that person never brushing their teeth. They just were bored by it. They didn't want to take the time. So it plays a role in dental health sometimes. It plays a role in obesity in some cases. There's a lot, if, if people study obesity, just type in obesity and self-regulation in Google Scholar. There are tons of studies that look at that connection. So that is definitely something to be aware of. 
What are some possible causes for these problems? Prenatal drug and alcohol exposure, any type of trauma during pregnancy. So again, mom going through domestic violence, maybe there's nutritional deficiencies. Any stress, worry, fear, anxiety the mom's dealing with during pregnancy can impact that developing child in utero. As the child's born then, anything that's going on in that household that's chaotic, filled with stress, trauma, adversity, neglect, caregiver unresponsiveness is a factor as well. So a child may be in a home where there's not direct abuse, but the parent is checked out for whatever reason. Maybe it's an untreated mental health issue. Maybe it's a physical health issue. Maybe it's a drug or alcohol problem. Lack of parental attunement, that lack of just making eye contact with your child, smiling, joking around, all these things play a role. Parental self-regulation plays a huge role. So if the parent is not one to stay regulated and they model that to that child, that child is more likely then to struggle with self-regulation as well. Inconsistent caregiving practices is a factor in this as well. So maybe one parent says one thing, the other parent says something different. It's crazy making for the child. It's a roller coaster ride of emotions. That's a factor. Brain injury, any type of head trauma, prenatal, postnatal, being aware of acquired brain injuries, people diagnosed with a neurodevelopmental disorder typically deal with some level of self-regulation. The big ones I always focus on is FASD, autism, ADHD, intellectual and developmental disabilities. There's many, many more. The very nature of dealing with chronic sleep deprivation can impact this. And I'm not talking like someone just has a bad night's sleep here and there. It may still impact it, but chronic sleep deprivation, sleep apnea, very poor dietary patterns impact this. Maybe the person is dealing with an unhid food allergy and no one even knows what's going on. It's a young child. That can be a factor. Digestive health issues, a child witnessing violence in the home, financial hardship, homelessness, discrimination, poverty, basically anything that causes toxic stress or tons of worry, fear, all of those things can impact it. And we also want to be aware of parental burnout. So the parents are doing all the right thing, but they're not sleeping, they're not eating well, they start coming more burned out. The very nature of parental burnout can lead that parent to have more self-regulation issues. A child who grows up in a home that again, has like lower parental emotional availability. That's a big thing I just want to spend a minute on. So if the parent is always distracted, maybe they're on their gadget all the time. They don't spend time with the kids. They lack the attunement. The parent becomes very overwhelmed and stressed out and yells and screams or whatever's going on. And that child can hear it or experience it firsthand. These are things that absolutely can impact that child's attachment representations, their sensory processing, their working memory, their self-regulation. 
a child just being glued to the screen all day long can absolutely put fractures in that in that self-regulation. So just being aware of technology use habits, particularly in the evening too, because again, watching that screen too much in the evening tricks our brain and says, hey, stay up. We produce less melatonin then. And if we're watching something stressful, and I, I this is an experiment I did the other day. I watched a very good movie. I'm not going to say the name, but it was action-packed. And I felt amped up inside when I went to bed. And I did not sleep all that that night. The next night, I did not watch any movie, but I listened to soft music before bed. Slept a heck of a lot better. That's just one example of many. And again, maybe there's not direct abuse going on in that household. So maybe there's not neglect or like physical, emotional abuse, but any kind of chaos and just crazy making environment and no one has their own room and there's tons of kids in one room and there's just commotion everywhere and there's never downtime and it's just very unpredictable and maybe the family's constantly moving over and over again. That child never gets ruts anywhere. Chaotic family systems have been linked to this as well. So that those are just a few things. There's many, many more we want to be aware of that could impact this. But I wanted to spend the rest of the time just talking about the good stuff and things that we can do to help. Any any other thoughts on that? Anything you've witnessed from your standpoint, Sandra? Yeah, I feel like I mean again taking notes and this list of the causes um, that would impact uh, you know self regulation or cause self dysregulation. Um, again, so many of those things come into play when it's children who have spent time in the child welfare system, kids in foster care kids who are living with relatives as opposed to their own biological parents for whatever reason, um, and kids adopted from overseas orphanages. So the kids that I myself and my listeners are raising are kids who would most likely uh, have, who would lack impulse control, lack self-regulation. So give us some hope here, Jared, <laughs> on well, you know, again, what are, what can we, how can we teach self-regulation? What can we do to help our kids? Find professionals again, who understand this to form your multidisciplinary team, listen to programs like this, read, take trainings, look at books and learn from other caregivers, other professionals about what works and what doesn't. Obviously, for some people, it's trickier to teach these skills than others. But I want to give hope, it, regardless of the age, regardless of the impairment, we can always make these things better. I'm not going to, it's not going to be cured for some people, obviously, if they're having, if they have structural brain damage from extensive drug or alcohol exposure, and they were in an orphanage for a good period of their early life. These are things that can absolutely damage parts of their brain and the structural integrity and the neurochemicals and the wiring. But even for the most profound situations and cases, there's a lot of things we can do to make this better. So think about your child or adult, whoever you're working with, what's their developmental, emotional, social age. I always talk about that in every talk we do. Forget about how old they are chronologically. It's more important to really understand how they function socially. Do they... what? 
what kind of vocabulary do they understand making things understandable to that person and maybe it's using one sentence at a time it's maybe one word at a time making things visual making things concrete and utilizing i to trauma informed care approaches so helping that child or adult feel safe got to start there if they don't feel safe it's you're walking on shaky ground help them feel safe and valued and known and heard and respected and those are all things that we would want to use approaches that are rooted in like attunement and empathy and validation attachment based approaches where we're kind and calm and patient and curious all those things once we do that we got a good foundation hopefully i guess before that sandra if we're dealing with someone really complex needs maybe getting a neuropsychological evaluation just finding out what parts of the brain are working and not working properly to get that data on the on the front end getting sleep under control if you're not sleeping well that's is this makes it much more difficult so get sleep better maybe it's working with a sleep specialist a sleep psychologist a psychiatrist whatever it is Rule, this is my opinion i'm not a nutritionist but i got a lot of certifications in nutrition i'm not giving medical advice here but in some cases maybe it'd be beneficial talking to a nutritionist if you're noticing certain patterns where after the person eats something they just become very dysregulated and you can't connect the dots are they dealing with a food allergy a food sensitivity or something could there be something going on in their digestive health system that isn't working properly take ruling out all these medical things i think is important and then get that safety and then once you do all these things starting to teach that child strategies to really help them gain better control over their own actions emotions and thoughts and feelings so empowerment comes to mind helping them feel more empowered building their confidence their self esteem their self worth i think their self efficacy plays a lot into this use i i would really recommend i would suggest trying to maybe use suggestions rather than straightforward commands in some cases too helping lift that person up kind of a bottom under approach because if you come in heavy and hot and you're dysregulated you're pointing the finger and you're mad at it i told you this seven times why aren't you doing that that's instantly going to bring more stress into the equation so anytime we can stay regulated ourselves bring that stress down it's going to be helpful when we think of fasd anything we can do in that environment to make it calm and predictable and consistent i don't think we can go wrong there and really being aware too of how that person takes in information i think we're doing a talk on information processing speed weaknesses coming up but if that person is dealing with some information processing deficits again if you are saying things to that person in a very fast manner their brain it's going to fill up and up and up it's going to be like a traffic jam or a bottleneck in their brain and they're going to shut down and they could shut down by 
looking like they're almost falling asleep, or they could shut down by like storming out of there and yelling and screaming or slamming doors. It could go both ways. Journaling has been found to be helpful in promoting self-regulation. Again, for some kids, maybe they're dealing with a learning disability and that's tricky. So again, individualize it to the person. Role playing is absolutely helpful when you're teaching self-regulation. So as the caregiver, you're modeling this behavior through role-playing. So what's going on in the home, role-playing that, but also being able to role-play these things in different settings. If you study the autism literature, some of you are probably familiar with the word or the term social stories. That might be something to try too. That does come up in this literature from time to time as a good way to teach self-regulation skills. So if you Google social stories, there's lots of worksheets you can find online and it really teaches a specific skill or strategy. So an example of using a social story is maybe someone has a really hard time getting up on time in the morning for school. Social stories would break that down, chunk it out and target that one specific problem couple other things to think about that consistently come up in the self-regulation literature is validation and praise when the person is doing something. So you don't want to shame. We want to encourage and motivate and use empathy and attunement. We want to make sure, again, we're calm when we're doing this because if we're dysregulated or talking too fast or asking that person multi-step instructions that can quickly turn for the worst. Be okay with silence then with that information processing. So if you do teach the skill, sit back. Maybe it takes 20 seconds, 30 seconds for that person's brain to process that information. Teach limit setting as well. Help define time. I think we talked about this last time, Sandra, or sometime about Maybe the child is glued to that screen all the time and you say, you're done in 15 minutes and the person never gets done in time. Sometimes that concept of time can be tricky and that can lead to dysregulated emotions. So helping define the time and label it, visualize it, those kind of things. When things aren't working and we're doing all the right things on paper and the person continues to have these same reactions, or maybe they get it a few times and then they regress. Seek to learn and understand. Stay curious because there's something else maybe going on we're missing. Dig deeper. I don't know what that would be, but we want to rule out any other like co-occurring behavioral, emotional, physical challenges. Yoga has been talked about a ton in the self-regulating literature. Yoga interventions might be helpful. Obviously, talking to a qualified specialist before doing this is some people are not a fan of yoga. Take the word yoga out of it and stretching. Stretching has been shown to calm and relax the mind. Deep breathing has been shown to be very helpful. Pre I think, too, anything we can do to build our resilience. So really looking at some of the resilience literature because resilience, again, is like a buffer, and it helps us bounce back from stuff more effectively. Without resilience, think of it as you're driving down the road, 
and your stick shift goes out and you can't shift gears. And that is a good example of resilience where we need to shift. We need to be adaptable. We need to shift down. We need to shift up without having that internal shifter and not being adaptable and flexible. We're more breakable. We're not bendable. We want to be bendable and kind of go with the flow because the world is an ever-changing place and there's so many variables coming at us. Obviously, if you're working with someone who has FASD, we know very well that that can be easier said than done to teach that. Meditation and mindfulness are wonderful strategies. It is hard for some people to slow their mind down and sitting in silence can be very triggering for some. If someone cannot sit in silence and they constantly have to be distracted by something else, that is a self-regulation deficit. Helping them learn to be okay with silence. Taking our time with that, it, it could take some time to do that. Teaching self-compassion. We don't have to be perfect. And this is just as important for the caregiver as it, as it for the, the client or the child. Cut yourself slack. We're doing the best we can. Things are tough. Having more grace, more self-compassion can be very helpful. Art and music and equine therapy has all been shown to be very helpful. But those are a few things that I would definitely try to consider through the self-regulation lens. Yeah. One of the things that I was thinking, because again, furiously taking notes here, but um, when you talked about that slower processing speed um, that our kids often have, uh, I used to be a lecturer. So like if one of my kids did something, they didn't, they did something they weren't supposed to do, or they didn't do something they were supposed to do. You know, there was always like the five point lecture and going on and on. And, you know, and then it just became this, you know, snowball of chaos because things would have been building and then I would be stressed out, you know, blow my cool, whatever it is. But I have learned over the years that if I myself am not self, if I am not regulating myself, um, then it just makes matters worse because then my kid is even less regulated. And if I'm yelling at them or giving that lecture and they have a slower processing pace, it just exacerbates the situation because they're not hearing everything I'm saying. And the whole thing just becomes one of those explosive meltdown disasters, um, all because I, I used to not really understand regulating myself and keeping a calm environment um, and understanding that the lecture does not work. It just makes my kid frustrated because they don't, they don't understand and cannot catch all of that. All of those words I'm throwing at them. Can't agree more. Definitely. And I look forward when we talk about that information processing one, I think that's going to be an eye opener for a lot of people. Cause once I started practicing that too, I felt better. I felt more at ease in my body. And like, it really allowed me to like slow down and things got done in a much more efficient manner. I think sometimes I will, I want to rush and talk fast and do things quickly. Learning how to slow down is so good for our body and our mind. And if we do that, people can take in that information around us, hopefully more successfully make sense of it 
use that to make better decisions in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. So like, that's one of the things I wanted to, uh, one of my questions I was going to ask you is about um, parents needing to self-regulate, especially if our kids are having a a meltdown, a hard time, things are stressful, parents can be stressed out. Um, So why is it so important for us to be self-regulated and Really, I was going to ask you how, but all of the things on the list that would help our kids um, would also help us, right? Being able to uh, exercise, stretching, breathing, uh, meditation, mindfulness, self-compassion, some kind of creative outlet, art, music, gardening, whatever it might be, I think can help us calm. Um, But why is it so important why is there such a connection? Because I, I, I've seen it with my own self, right? If I'm not regulated, my my kids then become like if I'm late going somewhere, this used to be a thing. Well, I'm, I still am late going places. <laughs> but it, I have one kid who has a really hard time in the car. And from the time we first adopted him and still now as a teenager. Um, so if I'm late, you know, and then inevitably you're running late, you get the red light, you get the slow driver, you know, uh, I'm not real, really bad with the road rage, but right. You get tense as a parent because you're in a hurry and the guy is slow, you know, but then what I was noticing is then my kid in the car with me, he's off the charts, having a hard time. You know, he's, he loses it completely because I'm that stress in the car, I think. So explain that. Like, why, why do I need to be self-regulated? I've learned to self-regulate. Even if we're late, I act like we're not late. I try not to be late, but if we are late, I don't even act stressed anymore because I know he'll, it'll be a trigger for him. You're feeling it in your body. So understanding it from a physiological standpoint or psychophysiology research, probably heart rate, changes, respiration changes, blood flow changes, all of these things impact our body, our mood, our energy, what we eat, what we think, we associate with, how much we take on versus do we have good boundaries and say no sometimes? Or are we burning the candle? We get up five o'clock in the morning and we're not crashing till midnight. Go, 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 go constantly. You're going to burn out at some point. You may be able to get away with it for several years. Who knows? But eventually that will catch up to you. And I would I would argue if someone does that, and I'm guilty as charged too. I take on too much, but I'm trying to work on it. We're all in progress here. We're working on having boundaries with just being able to say no, taking more downtime, not always feeling rushed. That is hard to do in our society and if you're raising a child with special needs it's even harder and i don't raise children with special needs so i can't imagine that that takes a lot of resilience a lot of grit and i commend all of you that it's honorable it's rewarding but it is challenging at times so i talk to enough people of course but having some downtime some margin in your day will go such a long way with you feeling better and feeling more regulated behaviorally and physiologically. If you feel more regulated physiologically and behaviorally, then you're probably going to be more regulated in your actions and the words you use and how you model those behaviors to everyone around you. 
you're going to be a happier parent, typically. You will probably be happier in your relationships with family and friends. You'll probably go to work feeling more energetic rather than maybe you're burnt out and stressed. You des everyone deserves to feel regulated. It's hard to do. Practice these things takes time and intentionality, but it can be done. And it's, it's vital, really, that we do that because it helps our kids as well as our own health, right? So, Jared, as we wrap up, um, I know you gave us a big, long list. I was taking notes uh, feverishly, um, but just for our listeners, maybe who didn't have a chance to take notes, top three steps parents and caregivers can start taking today to help our kids and ourselves really with self-regulation it's not medical advice this is just what i would do and kind of the lens i look through i'm a big fan of integrated behavioral health and psycho neuroendocrine immunology research that's a big topic big sleep sleep is number one to health in my opinion get that under control work with a sleep specialist maybe the child is dealing with weird sleep issues and there's so there's so many things going on that it's so hard to know without going and getting a test there there are i think over 90 different sleep disorders out there right now there's so many things going on with sleep that we don't understand we all know like sleep apnea and insomnia but there's so many more things with sleep so sleep's good i'm not giving nutrition advice but Really, maybe working with a nutritionist that plays such a huge role on our cellular health. And if our cellular health is optimal, our guts work better, our brains work better, we're happier, our moods work better. And then I would also just find some downtime, take more time, more margin. Maybe it's not more sleep but more rest, more space, more margin, more time for fun too, laughter. These things can have a real positive impact on our mood and energy. And then we might feel more optimistic. We might have more gratitude. We might have more resilience. All of these things are linked to having better self-control. Wow. Those are all good things. I love it. Sleep, nutrition, and some rest and relaxation, right? That would benefit our kids and us caregivers. So Dr. Brown, once again, thank you for unpacking another important subject for us today. Um, I am looking forward to our next episode when we're gonna discuss, um, I believe it's trauma and metacognition, which I believe has to do with awareness and understanding of one's own thought processes. Am I right there? Yep, and we talked about executive function, CEO of the brain, boss of the brain, metacognition is the owner. So that is the top person in the company. It's the owner of the company. The CEO may not own the company, plays the major role day to day. Wow. Depending on what research you look at, that's kind of how it's described. And there is some studies that look at training, like using metacognition training for kids with ADHD, autism, FASD. So there is research to support this too. So very, very important component. And what we talked about today, self-regulation, 
that is a facet too that we'll talk about with metacognition. Wow. Well, it's a new subject for me, so I can't wait to take a deeper dive into that next time. So Jarrett, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us again today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Wow. And thank you for joining us today for this special series with Dr. Jared Brown, self-regulation. What an important topic parents must not only understand when it comes to our kids, but ourselves as well. Um, now be sure to join us next week when we talk about trauma's impact on metacognition. I, I don't know a whole lot about that topic, so we're going to really hear that from uh, Dr. Brown. I like hearing like hearing that that is the owner of the company um, when it comes to our brain. So we're going to learn a lot together next time on our next bonus episode. Uh, remember, our regular episodes of this podcast drop on Mondays. Be sure to catch those along with these bonus episodes. And we are finishing off September, uh, which was International FASD Awareness Month. Um, all of our September regular episodes will focus on FASD, a topic every adoptive foster and kinship caregiver needs to know about. So I hope you will check out all of those important episodes as well. If you have a question for myself or Dr. Brown, a topic you want us to tackle, um, anything at all, feel free to reach out. Uh, via our website, justicefororphansny.org, or you can email me directly, Sandra Flack, JFO at gmail.com. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, again, please let us know by subscribing and let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know as well so that they can listen to and be encouraged and equipped. Uh, as I mentioned in my conversation with Dr. Brown, um, previously we were given zero resources when my boys got diagnosed with FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, now I want to make sure to provide resources and supports to parents and caregivers who are struggling along this journey as well, because I know what it's like. I'm living the dream with you every day. And I want to make sure that we are here um, to support you, to encourage you, to educate you. In addition to our Hope for the FASD Journey virtual support community, which I mentioned at the top of the show, um, we offer an intro to FASD training. It's an uh, We offer it online um, and in person for those of you who are somewhat local to the capital region of upstate New York. I've created a 90-minute training about FASD for parents. Professionals can take it as well, um, but I, I really have a heart for parents, but we're opening it up to professionals as well. But we're going to be offering intro to FASD online. I believe it is October 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. You can go to our website, justicefororphansny.org to sign up for the 90-minute training. Um, it is, uh, you would click on at the top of our homepage, you would see where it says trainings. If you click the trainings tab, there's a drop down. It'll say FASD. Click on that and, and the training will show up. So it's our intro to FASD. 
Um, we're offering that online as a, in, in a, like a Zoom format on October 27th, I believe. So check that out. Um, remember again, it's, it is, the, this is the last week of September. I cannot believe it's the last week of September, but it is. And that was International FASD Awareness Month. We want to help make this invisible disability visible. That is why JFO is an FASD United affiliate. Um, just a little uh, shameless plug about my book, uh, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father, award-winning book. It won Memoir of the Year. We got a golden scroll for that. Um, you can find Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father, wherever you buy books. If you'd like a signed copy, you can go to my personal website, sandraflack.com for a signed copy. Always want to give a big shout out to some of our business sponsors that help us do what we do here at JFO. And that would be Trinuclear Corporation, Bishop Boudry Construction, National Bank of Koksaki, and Coleman Insurance Agency. Be sure to find and follow Justice for Orphans on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find me, Sandra Flack, on both platforms as well. And I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.